You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.10, The Form of the Danger is an Emanation of Energy, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and I guess this is what they call podcasting in a single tape. I mean, take! I'll start again. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust Memory and reminding myself that at age 21, my go-to methods for dealing with problems were also running away or kissing my boyfriend. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 718 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Tristan W., Zachary N., Chris O., and Paolo G. You keep us genki. Mobile Suit Breakdown does not have sponsors or advertisers. It's support from our listeners that keeps the electricity on and the Gundam takes flowing. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see us reach the Gundam shows of the 2000s and beyond, become a monthly subscriber today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week, Stardust Memory Episode 10, Gekitotsu Seniki. Its English title is Colliding War Zones, and its original English title was The Hot Area. It was released on May 21st, 1992. The chief director was Imanishi Takashi, who also wrote the script. Watanabe Shinichiro drew the storyboards and directed the episode, and the animation director was Kawamoto Toshihiro. Now, the recap. It seems that no one in the Federation expected it, and even as Gato's intentions become clear, they are all powerless to stop him. Even Cole, flying the Unit 1 as fast as it will go, cannot make it before Gato and the Unit 2 fire a nuclear missile into the center of the Federation Naval Review. The explosion tears through the fleet, silence followed by a roar, blinding light expanding outward, space debris, ships, and soldiers annihilated in its path. The radio channels fill with desperate calls for help, status reports, and attempts to organize what remains of the fleet. Captain Synapse directs the Albion toward Competo to join the rescue efforts. Two-thirds of the Federation ships are out of commission, but the highest-ranking admiral still alive in the sector is confident that the remaining third still outnumber the enemy force. Delaz has played his last ace. Listening to the distress calls from her flagship, Tense and sweating, Shima prepares herself for the next phase of Operation Stardust. The countdown clock beside her shows just under 58 hours remain. Cole loses a moment to the shock and horror of the bombing before resuming his hunt for Gato. It doesn't take long to find his enemy and the two pilots fight with everything they have. Cole is not the inexperienced rookie he was in their first confrontation, and the Unit 2 is damaged, its left arm floating uselessly at its side. They seem evenly matched, with each mobile suit taking damage, but neither truly gaining the upper hand. In the end, the two pilots, the two Gundams, 
find themselves locked in a deadly embrace. While grappled close, each lands a final, destructive blow on the other, with unknown moments between the incapacitated mobile suits and oblivion. Wingmen from both sides cry out for their pilots to get to safety, and in the silence of space, the two men are briefly face to face, before Gato jets off and the exploding Gundams send Cole drifting into the hand of Keith's mobile suit. Nothing is left of the Unit 1 or Unit 2. Shima's fleet reaches their destination, the two empty colonies in transit to new locations. Their escorts are killed or driven off, the colonies seized. On Shima's order, her fleet fires on the colonies, targeting the point at which one of each of the colony's three mirrors connect to the main cylinder. The mirrors break off and drift away, leaving both colonies unbalanced and listing. Federation scouts spot Shima's fleet and realize she's pulled off a colony jack, but she is confident they are too late to stop her, and High Command cannot imagine what Delaz wants with two empty colonies. While most of the crew on the Albion try to rest and recover from their recent ordeal, Mora pulls Ko aside and asks him for help. Nina isn't herself. She's moping, quiet, won't leave her room, and Mora is convinced that Cole is the only one who can comfort her. He finds Nina looking out a window at the stars, and begins with an apology, assuming that she's low because of the loss of the Gundams. But that isn't it. She is afraid of what's happening to herself and to Cole and wants to get away from it, to go to Earth together. But Cole doesn't believe that Operation Stardust is over, and plans to stay and see it through. Nina argues that he's already done and sacrificed enough. Both seem sad and serious, and although nothing is decided, they find comfort in each other's arms. Not long after, Nina and Cole are summoned to the captain's quarters to discuss what happens next. Synapse agrees with Cole, Operation Stardust is not over and so has decided to change course, directing the Albion to the La Vienne Rose to retrieve the Gundam Unit 3. Nina and Cole proceed to talk over each other, Nina terrified, Cole surprised, Nina arguing that this isn't necessary, Cole eagerly volunteering to pilot the mystery Gundam, until they are interrupted by an urgent report describing Shima's attack on the empty colonies. After hearing what's happened, Nina has a horrifying realization. The unbalanced colonies will wobble, eventually colliding and bouncing apart, sending one of the empty colonies on a collision course for the moon. This realization comes too late, and the Albion is too far away to intervene. All they can do now is arm themselves, and try to prepare for whatever Delaz has planned next. Hey, so what is Nina's deal in this episode, Nina? Use your Nina powers. <laughs> Nina synchronicity. By the end of this episode, I was pretty well convinced that Nina and Gato used to be in a romantic relationship. Oh, go on. What in this episode made you think that? <clears throat> Are you ticking things off on a list over there? Yes. There are periodic cuts of her during the fight between Cole and Gato, where she makes comments like, why do these two have to fight each other? 
which implies that these two specific people fighting each other is particularly painful to her. And why would that be unless she has some kind of deeper connection or or cares about Gato in some way beyond merely knowing who he is? And it's already been implied before, and we talked about how she already knew Kelly. She talks about Gato in that episode as though she knows him. It's certainly possible that their connection could be a friendship or a familial connection or something other than romance, but just kind of the way this particular story is written, I think romance is the most likely. There was that reference in a prior episode to Nina having messed up some kind of prior love affair because of her focus on her work. And it's very easy to imagine how her work and Gato's devotion to the cause might have broken up a relationship. When she starts crying on the bridge, why must it be this way? There is a sense that she is crying for Cole, for Gato, for the Gundams, for herself. (laughs) Those lines you've pointed out do suggest an equivalency between Cole and Gato, that it would be impossible for her to pick which of them she would rather win this fight. Also, the first time in her conversation with Cole when she gets angry is when he brings up Gato. She gets mad about the mention of Gato. She feels afraid. She tells Cole she wants to forget. And she makes that very ironic comment about how the war is drawing her in, how it's staining her against her will. She was already a weapons manufacturer. (laughs) But now she has to choose a side. And she really doesn't want to. She does not want to have to choose. When Mora pulls Cole aside to say, Nina is not herself. Ko thinks Nina is upset about the loss of both Gundams. To be fair, Ko thinks everything is about the Gundam. And he does seem conflicted about offering comfort in that circumstance because he feels personally responsible and maybe also worries that Nina blames him. He looks rather grim when Mora charges him with this. Or he's just like, oh no, comforting a person. I am not equipped for this. As a modern man. (laughs) I don't understand feelings or what they're for. I've never felt mine, and I don't intend to start now. I was never taught, and I will not learn. Mora sort of comments about whether or not this weird depression is about the Gundams. She says something like, maybe that's all it is. It's possible Mora knows more than she's saying. Or Mora just has friends' intuition and a hunch that that's not what this is about. But when she says Cole is the only one who can comfort Nina, Mora and Nina are good friends. If Mora cannot pull her out of this, if Mora cannot comfort this, again, this isn't necessarily the case, but it kind of implies that this is specific to the romantic relationship. And to his credit, bless him, Ko actually manages to take a hint for once. It might be the most obvious one in the world, but when a person closes their eyes and tilts their head up towards you and very nearly purses their lips, finally, Ko is able to read the signs and give Nina what she needs in the moment. This comes back to my spiral theory about Ko's character development, that we keep repeating these same story beats over and over, but a little different each time. Nina wants to run away. She says, I don't care where I go as long as I can be with you. Cole is convinced this isn't over yet. 
her counterpoint, even if it's not over yet, haven't we done enough? Haven't you given enough? And this echoes back to the Kelly Lazner episodes. Exactly. Nina wanted to run away from her job, from her life, from the moon with Cole. And to Kelly, Nina says, you've fought enough. You've done enough. Do you have to keep fighting until you die? And Latora says the same thing. Latora says, you already gave them your arm. What more are you going to let them take from you? But will Cole ever stop? What would it take to get him to stop? This goes to the heart of the episode. This goes to the confrontation between Ko and Gato when they talk about resentment, hatred, dishonor, shame. Oh no, I'm not done talking about Nina yet. Well, we'll continue, but <laughs> I only mean to point out that this smaller personal story is inseparable from the larger grand narrative. There was one other moment that made me think Nina used to be more intimately involved in Neozeon, let's say. When the Albion receives news that the colonies have each had a mirror blasted off, Nina is the one who says, oh, by doing that, they've unbalanced them. They will both start to wobble, and that wobbling will probably cause them to collide and then bounce off of each other. We have every reason to believe she's very intelligent, and maybe she just thought that up in the moment on receiving this information. Or maybe it's a plan she had heard before. Hmm... Maybe it's a plan she helped to develop. Hmm. And she may not have gone through with it. She may have later decided, no, I don't want to be party to this. I thought this was just a thought experiment. I don't actually want to do this. <laughs> but the speed with which she realizes what's happening, obviously that could just be the show, right? Mm -hmm. Often <laughs> TV shows need to compress time and make things happen quickly. But it could also be that she was familiar with this concept before. I think she's the only spacenoid in the room at the time that that happens. And so, like, that could explain her quick reaction. Maybe this is a thing that spacenoids think a lot about in the same way that we live in New York City, which is on the coast, technically a port city. And so we tend to think about, like, the possibilities of flooding if there's another hurricane in a way that I never did when I lived in a landlocked part of the country. Or maybe you're right. Maybe she was involved in all of this. An entire mirror breaking off the side of the colony feels a bit extreme in terms of <laughs> likely natural disasters. Fair. I did think it was really funny when the Federation Admiral is like, what could the Delaz fleet possibly want with uninhabited colonies? I'm like, I'm sure diegetically within the world of the show, it's a perfectly natural question to ask. I'm sure they could do lots of things with uninhabited colonies, but... For us, the viewers, we know what Xeon does with uninhabited colonies. Famously, they use them as projectiles. We've seen them do that in basically every show. Even beyond our special Gundam knowledge about this, though, that comment feels like part of this episode's characterization of the Federation as largely unsympathetic. And not just unsympathetic, but stubborn, lacking in imagination. It's funny to me now to think that we have never talked about Captain Synapse's name, but this is a very opportune time to do so. In English, the most common use of the term synapse is we talk about the synapses firing in your brain, the electrical signals between different parts of your brain. And when we talk about synapses firing, we mean thinking. And within the show, of all of the captains, commanders, admirals, 
Synapse really seems like the most thoughtful, the one who is really actually trying to figure out what's going on instead of this puffed up, arrogant, reactive organization that he happens to be attached to. Well, that's why they will never make him an admiral. I like that you said here that the Federation is not sympathetic, because that could mean that the Federation is not capable of sympathy, or that the Federation is not worthy of our sympathy. Hmm. The extremely pointed juxtaposition of replaying Gato's attack on the fleet, followed by the horrifying chorus of distress signals and calls for help, SOS, Mayday, followed by the helmsman's comment, whoa, who could imagine a Federation weapon could do this? Yeah, it's significant he calls attention to its Federation-ness instead of saying something like, I can't believe that a single mobile suit was capable of all this. Right, he could have said something much more neutral. They deliberately wrote that line to draw attention to the fact that this was the Federation's weapon, a thing they wanted developed, they purchased, they owned. Though, I come back again to really wishing that I had the text of the Antarctic Treaty in front of me, because there's a lot of noise made in this show about how it was a treaty violation to build the GPO-2 with a nuclear weapon. But I would have expected a wartime treaty like that to ban the use of the weapons. Rather than their existence. Exactly. I mean, we know the Federation has the stockpiles. They just aren't allowed to use them. So all they've done here is to create a weapon that could theoretically use it. And we know they were planning on testing it. But we don't know if the Antarctic Treaty actually included a ban on testing nuclear weapons. I mean, within the context of when this show was made, a lot of the... uh, treaties and agreements and attempted arrangements between various governments around the world were less about use and more about nuclear non-proliferation or restrictions on maximum payload of certain types of missiles and explosives and trying to impose limits on numbers and production. And so, as so often happens with these kind of genre movies, it's possible that the meaning of Antarctic Treaty has shifted through the series from being more like the Geneva Convention and governing allowable and disallowed activity during war to more like Cold War era. Like the limited test ban treaty. Or yeah, stuff like exactly. That. Yeah. No, it's totally possible. Clearly, the show is making the point that the Federation has done wrong by building this thing whether it was a violation of the strict terms of the treaty or not. And perhaps trying to make a case for the fact that nations should look at these kind of like non-proliferation agreements as protecting them rather than limiting their capacity, because any weapon you build can be stolen, can be copied, can't like any weapon you build can be used against you. The original purpose of the Antarctic Treaty in the setting is that after the colony drops, both sides were desperately afraid of the other one using some kind of superweapon against them. The Federation had a ton of nuclear bombs, and the Xeon side was terrified that they were going to use them against the Xeon colonies. The Federation was terrified that Xeon was going to keep dropping colonies. And so they made an agreement that was basically like, nobody gets to do either of those things. Presumably, the Federation felt after the end of the war that with the threat of Xeon removed, there was no real advantage to them to maintaining the terms of the treaty. They could go back to using nuclear weapons with no real risk. Clearly not the case in either sense, right? Because now Xeon has just detonated a nuclear weapon and they're about to do a colony drop on the moon. 
But with the show so interested in condemning the Federation for the creation of this weapon, does the show have equal condemnation for Gato using it? I don't think the show is casting Gato's actions in an approving light. I don't think they're over there giving it the thumbs up. But I don't think it's as disapproving. Because as we've said before, there's a lot about Gato that even if we think he is totally overblown and unreasonable, we also think he's being manipulated and used. And that excites our sympathy. And the genuine affection that he shows towards the people he commands, there are things about him that are certainly presented positively. And uh, whether he wants to admit it or not, he is also a cog in the war machine. And I think the show is pointing at the war machines and saying those are bad, but does not cast similar condemnation on any one individual person. I'm glad you highlighted that line about being a cog in the war machine. When Gato calls Cole a cog in the war machine, he simultaneously asserts that he himself is not. We disagree with him, but he believes that. He is claiming for himself total and complete personal agency. He may be under orders, but he is doing these things because he believes that they are right, that he is supported by righteousness, that he chooses these actions. It's fascinating to look at the similarities and differences between him and Cole and which ones are acknowledged and which ones are not. He can tell that whereas before Cole was just kind of confused (laughs) by all of this, now Cole hates Gato. And Gato can acknowledge, ah yes, that hatred is the basis of all of this. When Cole mentions the disgrace of losing the unit too, Gato says, Ah, now you have also tasted the bitterness of defeat. You understand part of this feeling that drives me. And Gato's satisfaction that he feels in this moment is impossible without Ko's reciprocal disgrace. Or death. Ko could die. But as long as he's alive, they will constantly be rebounding because every time Ko achieves something and is satisfied, Gato will feel disgrace and will need to get his own back. It's a vendetta that just keeps accelerating and accelerating until somebody is dead or somebody learns how to move on. Somebody learns how to let the past go. That's what I thought of the moment one of Gato's wingmen says, ah, this is payback for the last three years. And it's like, okay, so what kind of payback are they going to want against you for this? And what after that? And what after that? It just never ends. Right. I mean, we could easily imagine that the payback for this is the Titans. And the payback for them is Ayug, and the payback for them, and it goes on and on. I'm glad you brought up this sort of mutually assured destruction between them, because there was something about this fight, a kind of murder suicide (laughs) kamikaze vibe to the fight between them the phrase deadly embrace kept popping into my head like you hear in nature documentaries between two praying mantises or between certain kinds of animals when they fight look like they're locked in a grapple locked in an embrace but one or both of them will die Yeah, when you said deadly embrace, I thought of those incidents where predator and prey both die together. Yeah, because once they are locked together close like that, neither one of them explicitly states that they are sacrificing themselves. And yet 
when the unit one has taken a probably fatal blow, Kosas, it's not over yet, and inflicts a similarly fatal blow on the unit two. And then both machines can't move and will explode at any moment. The people get out alive, but to the extent that the people are the machines, each of them has basically killed themselves and each other. Or they have molted. They have emerged from their old shells, from their old carapaces, and will now need to get new ones. Shinier, faster, better. Like the Unit 3 that gets mentioned in this episode. I felt like they were again hearkening back to First Gundam, and in particular the fight between Amro and Shar with, like, epes, with foils, at the very end of First Gundam. Well, during the final clash, the Unit 2 stabs the Unit 1 through the shoulder, and then the Unit 1 stabs the Unit 2. I don't know if it's directly through the head, but it's, like, kind of headward in the head zone. And that's how the fight between Shar and Amuro with those epes ended. And the way the bodies wind up straining against each other's beam sabers so close together. I mean, the, the Gundams are practically brothers, and Ko and Gato not so very far off either. So like you said, they end in an embrace. They're sort of ships passing in the night meeting on their way out of their mobile suits. I realized actually reminded me more of, I want to say, Zeta? There's that, like, sunset reunion between Amaro and Quattro. Mm -hmm. Because there is this initial silence and sense of total stillness while these two men look at each other. And then Gato clasps Ko's hands. He takes his hands, touches his helmet to Ko's helmet, and tells him, I won't forget your name a second time. Which is about as much a declaration of respect as Ko is likely ever to get <laughs> from Annabel Gatto. Wherever he started out, Ko has now grown to be very like Gatto, and Gatto recognizes him in this moment. Um, I don't know I would go so far as to say very like, but Ko now has enough experience of real fighting and the loss inherent to that, that they can relate to each other as veterans in a way that they couldn't when Cole was like a raw recruit. I don't know. I think Ko's reference to disgrace here is extremely Gato-like. Ko at the beginning of the show would never have said that. He does apologize to Nina when he doesn't bring back the unit too. He already feels that sense of responsibility for the Gundams. Yeah, but I think that's different from feeling like being defeated on the battlefield constitutes shame and disgrace. He feels bad for disappointing Nina, like he said he was going to do something and then he failed to do it. But that's a little bit different from feeling like you have this shame hanging over you that you need to expiate in battle. But also the fight itself is kind of palindromic, which is to say the first scene matches the last scene, the second scene matches the second to last, and so on. But a lot of it is flipped. In the beginning, we see Gato doing things, and at the end, we see Ko doing similar things. Like, when Gato releases the beam saber to use it as a distraction so that Ko attacks it instead of him. That must be an old trick. We've seen people do that in Gundam before, like Amuro used his bazooka to distract Char in uh, Char's counterattack. But Ko does a very similar thing at the end of this fight, except he uses the foot of his mobile suit. Each of them has a moment where they kind of like limbo under a beam saber strike. 
At the beginning, Gato is flying circles around Ko. By the end, Ko has begun to do the same thing in return. I don't know, I think we're meant to see them as growing increasingly similar. They're certainly presented in parallel. I just think that that essential difference of Gato believes that what they are fighting for, the ideology, whatever he believes that to be, still unclear, Mm -hmm. uh, is morally good and his enemy is morally evil. And while Cole has come around on my enemy is morally evil, I have seen no indication that Cole believes the Federation is morally good or that the Federation is fighting for some sort of net benefit for humanity. (laughs) For any of that to be the case, the Federation would actually have to stand for something instead of just the nebulous concept of order and the continuation of the current situation. And I think that the show doesn't believe the Federation stands for anything. When you consent to be a cog in a big machine, in a war machine, in a big corporation, whatever, there comes with that a certain kind of like a moral shield, some portion of the moral weight of your actions, of the responsibility for them, passes up the chain to whoever told you to do it, to whoever told them to do it. And like, it's not a complete shield. It doesn't absolve you of what you've done. But even so, the responsibility is shared among everybody in the organization. And it passes upward in a kind of pyramid shape to the people at the top. If you're in an autocracy, it goes up to the sovereign, who ultimately bears a portion of responsibility for everything that gets done under their orders. And if you're in a democracy, it goes up, it reaches the president, the parliament, whoever's at the top, And then it spreads back down again to all the enfranchised citizens of the democracy. And you can tell yourself and you can tell others, yes, I pulled the trigger, I flew the plane, whatever. But if I hadn't done it, somebody else would have done the exact same thing. Because if you're a cog, you are ultimately replaceable. You're just there to do one small part of the action. If you're Gato and you claim personal righteousness, personal agency, all of it falls on you. You are claiming the right to judge who deserves to live and who deserves to die. I think you and I are making slightly different distinctions about Gato's position here. Yours is that by disclaiming the cog thing, by saying, I am not a cog in the war machine, he is instead claiming personal agency. I think he's instead claiming that Neo Zeon is not a war machine. He is just as beholden to Delaz as Koi is to his commanding officers, and I don't think he would deny that. But he sees the Federation as this like military industrial complex for the economic benefit of a few people. They have to be constantly at war, but not very effectively and not to any purpose and that Cole signed up to be a part of that, and that that's despicable. But Neo-Zeon, because they are not the established government, because they are fighting for this very specific purpose, at least in his mind, do not constitute a war machine, and therefore, like, that's part of their moral superiority. Do you think Gato knows about the other part of Operation Stardust? Do you think he knows about what Shima is doing while he's distracting the Federation? I have no clue. If he feels any pangs about it, I do not doubt that Delaz can comfort them. Because Gato here 
Although he has used a nuclear weapon, he has used a weapon of mass destruction with enormous potential for collateral damage, he's also done it in, like, the cleanest imaginable use case. Right. It's a concentrated group of combatants. At a Federation military base thousands of kilometers away from the nearest civilian, there's almost no potential for collateral damage. Even the radiation released is probably not going to be enough to affect colonies or planets or the moon. Gato gets to live out the fantasy of the clean war. But does he know that it's all a distraction for a colony strike on what is definitely a civilian city? It's brief, but I did wonder how Shima feels about Ooh, all of this. Yeah. Because she is sweating, she is tense. She doesn't want to do it. She comments, well, we've come this far. Like <laughs> She was hoping Gato would fail. Because if Gato failed there, presumably the whole operation would be called off. Yep, and they all would have fled back into space. And Maybe that's why she was selling the Federation the secrets of Gato's plan. She does do the evil laugh when the two colonies finally crash together. She does. But all of the lead up to that, she does not seem her usual, calm, happy-to-be-evil <laughs> self. The evil laugh is recycled footage. Mm. Yeah, everything leading up to that, she looks so tense. And one read on that is she's doing something that's very important to their mission, and who wouldn't be tense. But one interpretation is that the nature of what she's doing is getting to her. I do love that retrospectively, that scene of Cole and Keith and the colonies, which could have just been scene setting, right? That could have just been a little bit of character development and here's what's going on in space. Now it turns out to be supremely relevant <laughs> to the core plot of the show. Definitely starting after the Kelly Lazner episodes, after the moon arc, it does seem like they've got the whole thing plotted out now. Everything leads into the next. We're getting foreshadowing. I do have a question for you. Who runs the Colony Corp? Like, That's are, a good question. Are most of its officers Earthnoids? Are most of them Spacenoids? Are most of them Lunarians? Is it a mix? Is it like... That's a great question. Have a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, because I did notice in a nod to perhaps some legitimacy in the Xeon complaints, when Shima's fleet attacks the colony escorts, first they try to ping the Federation, but their signal is blocked. Then they ping Shima's fleet, and it's, aren't we all spacenoids together? But we saw on the moon that that is not how all spacenoids feel, that there are plenty of people who live in space, like many Lunarians, who do not consider themselves to have common cause with all spacenoids. And the Colony Corp could easily be like Anaheim, this sort of extra-governmental entity with its own interests that are not necessarily the interests of the people they purportedly serve. Actually, they serve their shareholders, whoever they may be. <laughs> Yeah, the Colony Corporation is one of those big question marks in Gundam lore. We know even less about it than we do about, say, Anaheim. Certainly, it seems really important. Um, the Colony Corporation, like, runs the colonies. They build the colonies, and they operate them. Now I'm picturing them like a massive space co-op board. <laughs> 
So I don't know how they're organized, how they're funded, who runs them, who owns them, etc. They do seem to be like an NGO or like UNICEF or something. Like they're affiliated with the government and it delegates to them the actual structural infrastructure issues of making the colonies work. And so whoever is in charge of the colony corporation, most of the people actually on the ground are going to be space noids because most people in space are space noids. And I do think there is actually an implicit criticism of Xeon and Neo-Xeon and the Delaz fleet and all of its different iterations in that the colonies actually are essential to life in space. Colonies are the homes of the space noids and Xeon just can't stop transforming them into weapons. Go back to First Gundam and you see Giran is forcibly evicting the million or more inhabitants of Mahal Colony in order to turn it into a laser. And in Tomino's novels and the background lore, we know that Xeon used poison gas to exterminate the populations of the colonies that they dropped on Earth. So this criticism from the Colony Corporation people of like, hey, hang on, you say you're fighting for space noise, but you keep killing us, is, I think, valid. As unsympathetic as the Federation is, Xeon, as an organization, not better. There isn't a winner. There aren't good guys. There are just bad organizations and the people trapped in them. And the people who start them. They're the most trapped of all. You've mentioned in prior episodes how it feels like there's been a step up in the visuals recently. And I kept thinking when I was watching this, this is what I want out of an OVA. It's a beautifully animated episode. Eye-popping visuals, magnificent and creative choreography. Just like, wow, cool fight scene. It feels special. It feels like, yeah, I had to pay extra for this and order it special, and I'm getting my money's worth. I really appreciated the variety of different framings they use throughout the fight. Sometimes they're fighting at the barest limits of visual range. Like the other mobile suit is just a light in the distance. You cannot make out a shape. Sometimes they're up close. Lots of close-ups of faces, of cockpits, of hands and feet on controls. So many great little details. Love those. And then... As I've noticed throughout the series, but particularly striking in this combat, the use of very bright light to create these stark, sharp shadows and really high contrast, which adds so much menace to their faces and to the faces of the Gundams, too. Mm-hmm. And speaking to those like the faces of the Gundams and the faces of the pilots, the way the mobile suits move in this fight it's so interesting and it feels almost unique for Gundam, but it also feels very human in the way the bodies move. Like there's one bit where Cole fires a beam and it just narrowly misses the Unit 2. And the Unit 2 almost like reels away from it, leans back away from it, but you can see the head of the mobile suit turn to watch the beam pass, which is like not a thing that a machine would do, but is very much what a human would do in that moment. Oh, and I loved, you mentioned um, the like extreme range fighting when the linebacker unit of gyms gets wiped out. I love the depiction because like we see a flash in the distance and then nothing and then the beam racing towards you. And it's towards you. It's like a POV shot for the audience. They also made some clever use of the mobile suits cameras, as you've noted before. When they both leave their mobile suits and, surprise, are confronted by each other, that surprise only happens because the cameras are out on the Unit 1, so Cole can't see what's directly outside. 
opens the hatch, and there's Gato. <laughs> there's also a moment during the fight where he says, oh, no, my main cameras aren't working. And when he switches to the alternate camera, Gato is already rushing straight at him. That's really good. So many little details. And linebacker is another American football reference. Or lineback, I should say. Lineback is what they say in the episode. Finally, a Gundam for Americans. <laughs> Actually, since you mentioned that specific line, uh, another one that stood out to me is when Wyatt is getting vaporized. And he says something like, is this stardust? And for the first time, I really thought about the way they say stardust in Japanese. It's often written in English, even in the official like, Japanese stuff. It's Operation Stardust written in English. But they do say it in Japanese, and they do have kanji for it. It's Hoshi no Kuzu. Hoshi is star. Uh, no is the possessive, so it's like stars, dust, stardust. But Kuzu is not dust the way we often use it poetically in English, like in the phrase dust to dust. And it doesn't mean just like loose, dry earth. Kuzu is dust in the sense of dustbin, waste, garbage. Mm. So Hoshi no Kuzu, stardust, is the dregs of the stars. And that's Delaz's fleet, the leftovers, the waste bits at the end, the people who have no place in this modern world. And then you have the new Federation Admiral, presumably the highest ranking one left alive. So positive that the one third of their fleet remaining active is more than enough to overpower Delaz's fleet. They have Delaz's fleet super outnumbered. Excuse me, sir, but how does that matter when he keeps outsmarting you at every turn? <laughs> the Federation High Command is like a hydra. You cut one head off and another even stupider head grows in its place. I did wonder, is Cowan still alive? I think he's back in Jaburo, so okay. probably. Okay. He kind of seems like persona non grata among a lot of these guys. Yeah, definitely. But gaining power every minute with everybody else getting <laughs> killed off. Uh, this whole thing has been a plot by Cowan to eliminate all the other Federation admirals. Little detail that I forgot to mention earlier when we discussed Nina, but when she objects to the use of the Unit 3, she says... I have no authority over that one. That is one of her primary objections, <laughs> which, uh, interesting. Look, I have worked for a big company. Everybody has their little fiefdom. Everybody has their little area of authority that they jealously guard. From a practical perspective, if she doesn't have any authority over it, then she's stuck in the same position as she is with no Gundams on the ship, which is, what is her role here? Like, yeah. what is her purpose? However, if she's worried that Cole is becoming more like Gato, more mission-driven, more devoted to a cause that he is never, ever going to give up, she might feel like the mutual connection to the Gundam is the only thing keeping their relationship together. And so if she doesn't have any connection to his next mobile suit, what is the basis of their relationship? It's not unreasonable of her. Ko's interest in her began because she was the lady with the Gundams. Now she doesn't have any Gundams. And like we've seen the Anaheim offices, we can assume some things about their hiring practices. Whoever does have authority over the Unit 3 is probably a woman between 20 and 25 years of age. So competition. Exactly. 
Ko will probably never become as, like, highfalutin and pretentious in his speech as Gato is, though. Yeah, so listeners, Tom had read a comment somewhere that accused Gato of speaking in idioms and aphorisms. Specifically, they mentioned yoji jukuo, which are little phrases composed of four kanji, and they are often idiomatic or common, like, philosophical statements or aphorisms. I went through and listened to the fight again. I'm pretty sure he only uses one yoji jukugo. He says, gaishu ishoku, which means beating someone hands down, beating someone with a single blow. This is when he's reflecting like, oh, was that too easy? After he has destroyed most of a fleet. But the rest of his speech is extremely formal, extremely flowery. He uses those SAT words (laughs) to describe things. It makes him feel outside of time. He's a relic of a bygone age or an imaginary glorious past. Hmm. The other funny language thing that happened this episode is that the current admiral of the Federation fleet transfers the flag to the Tsulon. Transferring the flag just means this is the flagship. This is the ship leading the fleet. But I wondered what Tsulong could mean. Uh, Tom and I both looked into it and both got different answers. I wound up going down a little bit of a rabbit hole and finding out that Tsulong is very close to the Chinese pronunciation for dragon slaying or dragon slayer, which I found because it's in the title of a wuxia novel from the 60s or something. Uh, And the term dragon slaying or dragon slayer using those same two kanji, also exists in Japanese. It's just pronounced differently. And incidentally, was also the name for the Kawasaki Ki-45, which was a World War II-era heavy fighter. On the other hand, I thought the other battleship was named the Birmingham. I wonder if they used the same naming scheme. And it turns out that Tsuron is how you say the name of the French city Toulon in Japanese. I think that's probably the correct answer, (laughs) but I liked my Wikipedia rabbit hole all the same. Certainly, we learned a lot more from your efforts than from mine. Ever since it appeared on screen back in May of 1992, the depiction of Gato's nuclear strike on the Federation Naval Review has sparked debate. How does the Unit 2's atomic bazooka actually work? Why does it look the way it does when it fires? Is it launching the warhead we saw in Episode 1, or detonating it inside the barrel to fire some kind of fusion beam? What kind of warhead is the so-called Mark 82 bomb anyway? And would a nuclear explosion in space actually look like this, act like this, devastate an entire fleet like this? With the very kind assistance of Mark Simmons and Zionic Scans, I've assembled a nice broad set of sources, from 0083's novelization to recordings of high-altitude nuclear tests by the American government, that may shed some light on these questions. But we're always going to come back around to the actual depiction in the show. We start from the assumption that what is displayed on screen is what happened on that bloody November day in UC-83. And our job is to explain it, using as few references to the vagaries of Minovsky particle physics as possible. This week I want to focus on the mechanisms of the bomb and the bazooka. 
what do we know about them, and how do we think they're supposed to work. Then, next week, I'll look at the explosion and its effects. The sequence of events in the show breaks down into three distinct stages. Firing the so-called atomic bazooka, the visible effects of the explosion, and the implied effects. We'll take them one by one, starting with a precise description of what we actually see and hear in the show. First, Gato connects the two components of the bazooka, the main firing apparatus located on the shoulder, and a long barrel stowed behind the massive shield. The warhead is already loaded in the main firing apparatus, as we observed in episode 1. Indicator lights on the outside of the weapon flash from red to green to indicate that it is ready to fire. Then Gato flies nimbly past several Federation cruisers on his way to a position some distance above the naval review. He takes aim at one of the warships, apparently the Birmingham itself. This point is a little unclear, actually, because he seems to be viewing the same ship from two very different camera angles, but the novelization specifies it is the Birmingham and refers to some kind of composite targeting system, which may explain why there are two different angles on the same ship. I should note here that I consider the novelization to be our best secondary source for these events. The novel, split into three volumes, was written and published during the production of the show, and they were overseen by Chief Director Imanishi, so we can be confident that they reflect his thinking at the time. The novelist was Yamaguchi Hiroshi, who was, just then, in the process of founding the now-famous anime studio Gonzo. In 1991, he had been one of the writers on quasi-official Entertainment Bible 39, Mobile Suit Gundam Strategy and Tactics Encyclopedia, One Year War Complete Record, and had previously written the story for the F-90 manga. Back in the 80s, he wrote for a line of what were called adventure hero books, which were somewhere between a choose-your-own-adventure story and a single-player tabletop RPG. One of those, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Jared's Attack Order, put the player in the boots of Jared himself before he joined the Titans, and features unique art by Kobayashi Makoto. If making this podcast has taught me anything, it's that every single Gundam character, even somebody like Jared, is somebody's special little guy. So if you're listening, MySpace user XX Jared Mesa Lover 87XX, I hope I just made your day. Is that a real MySpace account that you found? No. <laughs> anyway, with his targeting computer locked onto the Birmingham, Gato fires the atomic bazooka. Its mouth glows briefly, like a dragon about to breathe fire, and then emits a massive blast of blinding light, one which visibly pushes the Unit 2 backwards. At the same time, there is a faint, barely visible blast of exhaust from the back end of the bazooka. You might need to go frame by frame in order to spot it, but I promise it's there. A second later, the light expands to fill the entire screen, and the Unit 2 disappears. The camera cuts, and the next thing we see is a rapidly expanding globe of light, the explosion itself. At no point do we ever see the projectile actually emerge from the barrel of the bazooka, nor do we see it fly to its target. This, combined with the sheer size of the blast from the mouth of the bazooka when it's fired, has led many fans to suppose that perhaps the bazooka isn't actually launching a projectile at all. Maybe the warhead detonates inside the barrel in order to produce a powerful jet of burning plasma and a blast of deadly radiation. This would make it superficially similar to some of the other big gun type weapons that we've seen in Gundam, like the colony laser or a hyper mega particle cannon. 
This theory is further buttressed by the existence of a real-world design for a theoretical weapon operating on the same principle, the so-called Cassaba howitzer. In the 1950s, American scientists at NASA and in the military started working on designs for spacecraft propelled by small nuclear explosions. You may remember we researched this all the way back in episode 2.26, when the Titans tried to use nuclear pulse engines to drop a colony on the moon. The more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? The basic idea of nuclear pulse propulsion is that if you put a sturdy metal plate on the back of your spaceship, and you detonate a small nuclear bomb on the other side of that plate, the explosion will vaporize the housing of the bomb and any, you know, other stuff you put in there, creating a certain amount of plasma traveling outward in every direction at great speed. The plasma that hits the sturdy plate will push it away from the explosion, and the plate will push the spaceship, thus acceleration. One problem with this design, though, is that if you use a regular old bomb, the plasma will go off in every direction. Only a fraction of it will actually hit the pusher plate, and thus most of the energy will be wasted. In order to improve the efficiency of the propulsion unit, they designed a special pulse unit bomb that would work like a shaped explosive charge, shooting a roughly cigar-shaped gout of plasma toward the pusher plate. Well, in the 1960s, the scientist Mo Scharf had the idea that you could turn the pulse unit around and point it at something other than a specially reinforced pusher plate. Something that you wanted to kill. Because suddenly that burst of high-speed, superheated plasma becomes a deadly lance of nuclear fire. The US military thought the idea was good enough for further research, and in fact they kept funding the Cassaba howitzer even after abandoning the original nuclear pulse propulsion spaceship idea. You can imagine how the Unit 2's atomic bazooka might work as a descendant of the Cassaba howitzer design. The bomb would be loaded into the chamber behind a plate of some lightweight material. Lightweight here is better because the resulting plasma travels faster after it gets vaporized. When the bomb goes off, it vaporizes the plate, and it hurls that deadly plasma, along with a ton of radiation, at the Birmingham. The force of the plasma leaving the barrel creates an opposite reaction, driving the unit tube backwards. And then this is partially countered by that gas expelled from the rear of the bazooka in the manner of a recoilless rifle. There's just a couple of tiny, huge problems with this model. First, none of the secondary sources describe the bazooka or the bomb this way. They're all pretty clear that the bazooka launches the warhead in the conventional way, and it explodes near its target. Second, this theory requires us to imagine a nuclear bomb which is, paradoxically, powerful enough to disintegrate multiple warships at least a kilometer away, while causing no visible damage to the bazooka itself. And cassava howitzers are not very efficient. Estimates based on experiments conducted in the late 80s suggest that only 5 to 10% of the energy from the explosion could actually be converted into the plasma beam. Which is a lot if you want to fire a beam at a soft target like a satellite or an ICBM, but not very useful if you are trying to turn a whole fleet into stardust. Third, it's just visually evident that the fleet is engulfed by a spherical explosion, not a beam or a narrow cone, and that the epicenter of said explosion is nearer to the Birmingham than the Unit 2, because one of them gets atomized and the other one is mildly inconvenienced. But if the Unit 2 is not firing a nuclear howitzer, why is the blast from the bazooka so big that it engulfs the screen and so powerful that it sends the Gundam flying backwards? 
We don't usually see this when mobile suits shoot missiles. Remember that we saw the Unit 2 being loaded with two separate components, the warhead and a canister of unspecified purpose roughly the same size. If you look very closely, you will notice that the canister has a number of thruster nozzles at one end. The model sheets for the show call this the booster section, and the warhead is labeled thermonuclear weapon section, and attaches to the other end. What I think has happened here is that the rocket motors on the booster unit activate while the projectile is still locked in place in the bazooka, causing a buildup of enormous pressure and heat inside the chamber of the bazooka. Perhaps that heat causes parts of the weapon to start glowing and creates the faint light that's visible at the muzzle. Once the chamber has reached a sufficiently extreme level of pressure, the projectile could be released, and it would exit the barrel moving at tremendous speed, driven forth by the pressure of all that superheated gas or plasma, and still firing its rocket motors. This could be what produces the sudden massive eruption of burning gas or plasma from the mouth of the bazooka. If it is plasma, which happens to be an excellent conductor of electricity, that would also explain all the crackling lightning visible around the barrel when it fires. Presumably, they use this method to maximize the projectile's acceleration once it's fired and its velocity once it leaves the barrel. Because, as was demonstrated in Shar's counterattack, even the most powerful nuclear warhead is useless if it can be shot down before it reaches its target. And, this method of building up the thrust until the projectile is on the verge of breaking its tether is similar to the way we saw the Sazabi launched from the Rulula at the start of that movie. We don't actually see the projectile fly to its target, but that's probably because it's moving faster than the eye, or the animator, can capture. I did consider the possibility that they had detonated a tiny, like, kiloton-scale nuclear bomb inside the bazooka in order to launch the larger main bomb, making it a nuclear pulse propulsion launched missile. But if that were the case, the rocket nozzles on the booster unit would be worse than useless. Since they're there, and they're definitely there, we need to account for them. So now let's talk about the bomb itself. All we know from the show is that it's called a Mark 82, and that it's a nuclear bomb of some kind. The secondary sources, including labels on model sheets prepared for the show and the novelization, consistently describe it as a thermonuclear fusion bomb. There's nothing in the show to contradict that, so let's just accept it as given. The basic idea of a fusion bomb is that you have to convince a number of light atoms, usually the hydrogen isotopes deuterium and tritium, to smoosh together and form a single heavier atom. That's the technical scientific term, smoosh. When combining like this, they need to shed a tiny portion of their mass in order to fit together into the larger atom. That shed mass gets converted into energy, and that energy, combined with the energy of other fusion reactions happening at the same time, becomes the explosion. The atoms ordinarily repel each other because of their mutual positive electrical charges, so to get them to smush, you have to increase their kinetic energy until it's strong enough to overcome that electrical repulsion. You do this by increasing the heat and the pressure until the atoms are moving fast enough to start combining. Once the atoms do start combining, the energy they release increases the heat and pressure yet further, causing other atoms to combine, setting off a chain reaction. And boom, that's the bomb. All of this takes no more than a fraction of a second. 
Real-world existing thermonuclear bombs achieve this using a multi-stage Teller-Ulam process. Conventional high explosives are used to compress fissile material, setting off a primary fission reaction. This produces expanding hot gases, superheated plasma, electromagnetic radiation, and free neutrons that are directed into the deuterium-tritium fuel, raising the temperature and pressure until, if everything goes according to plan, the smushing begins and the secondary fusion reaction starts. A theoretical alternative, sometimes called a pure fusion weapon, would omit the primary fission stage and would instead use extremely powerful lasers to superheat a fuel capsule. The intense heat causes the spherical capsule to implode, squeezing and superheating the deuterium-tritium fuel within it, triggering fusion. The theory is old, but the National Ignition Facility in the United States has been experimenting with this method since 2009, and six months ago, in December 2022, they managed, for the first time ever, to break even, producing more energy from the fusion reaction than it cost to start it. No one has ever actually built a pure fusion weapon, at least as far as the public is aware. The high energy cost and the size of the necessary equipment probably makes pure fusion bombs impractical with current technology. But since we know the principle is sound, it's easy enough to imagine a bomb stuffed full of miniaturized future lasers, perhaps powered by some kind of Minofsky device. Conveniently, the 0083 novelization specifies that the Mark 82 fusion shell is a pure fusion weapon in which lasers, powered by something called a Minofsky condenser, superheat a compressed deuterium fuel until it explodes. There's nothing in the episode to contradict that, so let's just assume that that is in fact what happens in the milliseconds after the bomb was launched from the Unit 2's shoulder-mounted atrocity tube. So that's pretty good, right? We've got a solid idea of what this bomb is and a plausible model for how it works, from activation to detonation, and we only had to say Minofsky twice. Next week, things get dicier as we try to figure out how exactly a single fusion bomb took out two-thirds of the Federation's main fleet. Was it plasma? Radiation? Secondary explosions? Neutron rays? Movie magic? Will we be forced to stare shamefacedly at our feet and mumble something about Minofsky particles? Tune in to find out. Next time on episode 8.11, Landscape of Thorns. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 11, and The Steel Rose. Oh, there are demands? You're going to explain them to us, right? Right? The Spirit of 79. Gato's got a brand new bag. You can't just ask to borrow an engineer's test pilot. That's a sacred bond. Relieved of duty. Lieutenant Commander Buzzkill over here. I get by with a little help from my friends. I redirect the colony drop with a little help from my friends. Several predictions are proven correct. Shima's cordial relationship with Anaheim pays off. What the f***?
is that? And when has piloting a mobile armor ever backfired on anyone? The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. wrong Gundam opinion this week is that whatever you may think of Gato's actions in this episode, you can't deny that he's guilty of space littering for just throwing away that bazooka. It's like how they got Capone on tax fraud. I need to not think about the fact that I have to edit this while I'm talking about it. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) She knows more than she's saying. Haha, yes. But I'm moving on. (laughs) Oh, don't hurt me. Aren't we buddies? (laughs) Well, no, not really. We still don't know what exactly it is Delaz wants. Just putting that out there. All right, I have something. I'll say something that doesn't seem like a transition to that, and then I'm going to transition you to do it. Shoot, sorry, I forgot how I started that sentence. All right, <clears throat> I'm ready to get started. Me too. I no longer feel as though I'm going to burst into tears. <laughs> Good. That one I would be okay with putting in the outtakes, just for reference. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> I'll include that part so that people don't think I'm being mean to you. You getting at something there? Is that a reference? This will often happen to me when I'm listening to the talkback. I'll realize that like we both understand each other so well that sometimes we don't actually finish the point we're making because the other person has understood. But I feel like for the sake of our listeners, who have not basically mind-melded with us. <laughs> We've released like 200 episodes. How have they not mind-melded yet? They're getting there. They're getting there. I just don't think we're quite there yet. We do actually have to finish the thought state our conclusions plainly. You're incorrigible. I am, it's true. And free neurons. Neurons. And (laughs) free neutrons. I 
atrocity tube is just making me imagine a version of YouTube that is only the worst videos. <laughs> oh, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> no, but YouTube without any of the good stuff. Oh.